0: Thanks for tuning in to our weekly message. Be sure to visit our website, weareheartland.us to find out more about the ministry and all of our upcoming events. Well, hello everyone. All right, it is great to see you today as we continue in the teaching series called Big Deal Meals, where over the course of this series we are digging into the book of Luke together, challenging ourselves to read the entire gospel of Luke, all 24 chapters, and to help guide our time in the book of Luke together, our team created this Luke study guide, which is kind of helping us as we get into the text. And so if you haven't picked one of these up yet, be sure to grab one on your way out today. Those are free. And then in addition to reading the book of Luke, over the course of this month, over the month of November, we are taking five weekends to dig into five specific instances in the book of Luke. Luke, one of the things that makes the Gospel of Luke so interesting is that Luke records 10 different times that Jesus sat down to a meal with a group of people and something significant happened. And so over the course of this series, we'll look at five of the 10, culminating with the last meal that Jesus shared with anyone during his earthly ministry that weekend after Thanksgiving. The other thing that we're doing, in addition to studying the book of Luke on our own during the week and in addition to our five weekends together looking at the the meals that Luke Uh, records for Jesus, is we're also then jumping into groups virtually, and many of us have gotten into groups where we're taking time throughout the week to talk about the teaching, and each week we give you a group of discussion questions to kind of tee up that time. And today, I want to give you the first question that you're going to be talking about in your groups this week, and that question is simply this. I was like, is it coming? Yeah. Uh, Share the story of a big deal meal from your life. This is a great question. I love thinking about this. I love thinking about the stories that you're going to be sharing. As you think about your own life, I'm sure that there are many big deal meals that you can think of, significant moments, significant conversations. Maybe it was your high school graduation party. Maybe it was a a wedding reception. Maybe it was a meal that you did to celebrate a promotion from work. I don't know what it is for you, but this week you get to talk about that. And personally, I wish I could be a fly on the wall in all of your groups and hear about your big deal meals. For me, there's been several. There's been a lot of meals that I would say were, you know, qualify as a big deal meal, but none more significant than the meal that I shared with my now father-in-law, Mark, when I asked for his blessing to propose to my now wife, Ashley. Uh, It's kind of a funny story, so I thought I'll just kind of tee up your groups this week by telling you mine. When I proposed to Ashley, uh, we were in college and we were pretty young. I think I had just turned 21. She was still 20 years old. Uh, I had never done this before, but I knew that when I proposed to my future wife, I wanted to first sit down with her father and to kind of get his blessing. I wanted to talk to him first. Kind of the traditional side of me wanted to do that. And so when I was seriously considering proposing to Ashley and like ready to do this, uh, I I was like, okay, how am I going to talk to her dad? I was so nervous, right? I'm 20, 21 years old and, you know, just had never been through this before, so it's like, what am I going to say? How am I going to articulate this? Like, what's he going to say? What does he think of me? I don't really know. It's, you know, I was, the thought of just walking into his office and sitting down and saying, you know, hey, what do you think about me marrying your daughter? Uh, was like, I was like, that's not how I want to do it, but I don't know what to do. And so, uh, thankfully, Ashley's mom, Sherry, said, hey, why don't you invite Mark to go to lunch with you? And then over the course of the meal, you can kind of talk about what it is that you want to talk about. And I thought, brilliant, Thank God for Sherry, one of the many times I have thanked God in my marriage for my mother-in-law. But so I invited Mark to lunch at this place called Mary's Market in Rockford, Illinois, and he agreed to meet me there. And for you to understand the story, you kind of have to picture the restaurant and how it's laid out. So imagine that this room is the, is the restaurant. And imagine that the front door is over here, and you would walk through the, the restaurant, kind of like where this front aisle is. And all of the kitchen and the counter and the cash registers are up here on the stage. and the cash registers here, like where the podium is, and then where you're seated is all of the tables. and the tables kind of run the length of the restaurant that way. Well, we were meeting for lunch, and so I wanted to get there early. Last thing I wanted to do was be late, so I got there early, and you know I'm just thinking about like, what am I going to say, and how is this going to go? And then I'm looking at the menu, and it's like, well, what am I going to order? And so I'm standing at the cash register, and I just sit down at this table right next to the cash register in the middle of the restaurant. And so Mark shows up, and we order, and we sit down, and there was this moment where he kind of looked around like, this is the table you chose to have this conversation, you know? (laughs) And uh, so we start talking, and I started by, you know, just talking about how much I loved his daughter and loved Ashley and wanted to spend the rest of my life with her and how I just wanted to serve her for the rest of my life. And you guys that have been around Heartland know me. You know that I get really emotional when I talk about things that are significant to me. And so, you know, I'm trying to like hold back the tears as I talk about this and, and as I ask for his blessing. And uh, then Mark goes, and Mark starts to talk about how much he loves his daughter, and uh, he has four kids, but Ashley's the oldest, and she's the only girl, and so um, they had a great relationship, still have a great relationship. She's a lot like him in, in some ways, and so, you know, he talked about how much she meant to him and how for the longest time he had been praying for the man that would one day become her husband, and how then he talked about how he believed that that was me. And as he's talking about that, he gets emotional. I get even more emotional when he says that. And so by this point, we're like both crying at this table in the dead center of the restaurant. By 1215, Mary's Market is a zoo packed. There had to be 50 or 60 people like huddled around us looking at these two guys going, what is up with them? And so that was a big deal meal for me because I got my father-in-law's blessing and I also learned a very valuable lesson about table selection. So there you go. That's my big deal meal. Now in your groups, you get to tell your own and embarrass yourselves too. Today, we're going to look at a big deal meal that Jesus shares with a Pharisee and a group of people recorded for us in Luke 11. And so if you want to turn there now, if you want to get started, you can jump over to Luke 11. We're going to be at the end of the chapter. But before we get into Luke chapter 11 and this big deal meal, I want to talk about this word. The word is performance. And the reason that I want to talk about this word is because you and I live in what has been called by many a performance-based culture, which is exactly what it sounds like. You and I live in a culture where our performance is constantly measured, evaluated, and judged above, in many cases, almost everything else. You and I work in a world of goals and deadlines and performance reviews, and this starts real early in life. In many ways, it starts the moment we are born when we are measured in our length and our weight and our color, and we are ranked against other babies who are being born and how long and heavy and their coloring. By the time we get into high school, our individual class grades get combined into a cumulative GPA, which is then used to judge us in comparison to all of our classmates, and we are given a class rank. That GPA, based as well with our standardized test scores, serves as the foundation for our acceptance or rejection from the colleges that we apply to. And that's not just true for a four-year school. That's true for two-year schools. That's true for apprenticeship programs. Even for those who choose to go into the military, they first take the ASVAB test, which tells them what jobs are open to them. This week we celebrate Veterans Day, so let me just do a timeout and say thank you to the women and men in the room who have served in our armed forces. We're so grateful for your sacrifice and for your your serving. And so, yeah. By the time we reach our adult jobs, though, we have been thoroughly conditioned to focus on the exterior without anyone really paying much attention to what is happening below the surface for us internally. In some ways, we understand that. Of course, that's the case with our companies. Companies do not exist to serve their employees. Companies exist to offer a service or product to the world that is deemed valuable and therefore makes money for the owner or the shareholders of the company. Employees are hired precisely for their ability to help the company reach its goals, and if you don't contribute to helping the company reach its goals, you probably won't be employed there for very long. We understand this when it comes to work. That's intuitive to us. We get this. But this performance-based mentality is not confined to our schools or our places of work. Even things as simple as posting on social media becomes a performance-driven thing that gets judged. And we ask questions like how many likes did it get, how many people made comments on it, how far up in the algorithm of other people's feeds did it get. You post a video on YouTube with your kids and somehow, even at a very young age, they want to know the answer to the question, how many views did my video get? You share a thought with the world by posting it on Twitter and you have to come back later to check it to see how many other people retweeted your thought. And then we carry this performance-based mentality into our faith as well. Growing up in the church, I don't know exactly where I got this impression, but somehow I grew up kind of seeing my faith as this list of things to do and another list of things to not do. And somehow, whether, whether this was taught directly to me, probably not, but whether I picked up on it subconsciously because of people's attitudes, or maybe it was just my misunderstanding as a kid about religion in general, but somehow I got the impression that if I did the right things, like if, if you go to church all the time, if you give 10% of your income to the church, if you read your Bible during the week, you're doing all the things that you're supposed to do, and then if you avoid the things that you're supposed to avoid, like like drinking alcohol or having premarital sex or listening to inappropriate music, then you are avoiding the right things and you are kind of knocking it out of the park. Like you are performing the way you're supposed to perform. Of course, this checklist approach to our faith was not new to me when I adopted it in my teenage years. And my guess is that some of you, if you're really honest with yourselves, would also say you either grew up with or maybe even carry that same mentality into your faith today. In fact, this approach goes back to the very beginning of people's desire to keep God happy with them, and it's one of the things that Luke tells us Jesus addressed head on at one of these big deal meals, the big deal meal that we're going to look at today in Luke chapter 11. We're going to pick up the story in verse 37, which is kind of right in the middle of the action, but it's just getting into what we want to look at. And so in verse 37 of chapter 11, we read that when Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him, and so he went in and reclined at the table. Now, two weeks ago, when we kicked this series off, one of the things that we talked about was how in the first century Jewish culture, people did not sit down at the table on a chair. They would recline on the floor around the table on pads or pillows or blankets and things. They would get comfortable. They, would, they knew this was going to be an event, and so, so they would kind of take their time in this. So what we find in Luke 11 is that Jesus has just finished teaching a large group of people, And one of the Pharisees, who had been in the crowd that day, wanted to spend more time with Jesus. And so he invites Jesus into his home, and he says, would you share a meal with me? Would you come to my home? And Jesus agrees. And so Jesus shows up at the door of this man's house. He walks straight in and reclines at the table. Verse 38, but the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. This surprised him that Jesus did not wash before the meal. Today, this is not that big of a deal for us. We, we eat without washing our hands first all the time. In fact, moment of mass confession. How many of you went to the restroom today and didn't wash your hands? No, don't, don't answer that. We don't want to know, right? We'd, we'd just be happier. Don't... This seems like a big deal to us today, or doesn't seem like a big deal to us today, to eat without washing our hands. But in Jesus' day, in this culture, this was a a very big deal, especially for this group of Pharisees who took this so seriously. I was thinking about how to try to make this uh, kind of resonate with us today and to kind of make an analogy. And the best that I could come up with would be To say, imagine a group of people in our society today who are obsessed with cleaning their house, right? Just imagine that there was a group of people in our society today who were so obsessed with keeping their house clean that there was even a formal group for it. Like, like imagine there's this group called the Clean House Society. As you can imagine, this group would be committed to, to keeping a perfectly clean house. They would do everything they need to do. They would constantly pick up. Everything would be in its place. They would dust all of the time. The, the, the you know, fridge wouldn't have any fingerprints on it. The bathroom would be so clean you could eat out of it. And as you can imagine, if there were such a group, one of the tenants of their, of their group would be that you take your shoes off when you walk in the front door. Right? And so you could imagine that, that they, they would never walk into somebody's home, especially somebody's home who was also in this group. They would never walk through the front door and just start traipsing around with their shoes on. No, they would never even think of that. They would know you take your shoes off and you put them where they need to go. I can see some of you looking at each other thinking, you should be in that group, right? Yeah. Well, that's kind of what this would be like. For Jesus to walk into a Pharisee's home and to not wash his hands before reclining at the table would have been unheard of. Everybody who was there would have thought, what is he doing? Interestingly, washing their hands was not actually part of the Mosaic law. It was not something that God had asked the people to do. We get a little more detail about the whole hand-washing thing from Mark's gospel. Mark tells us about another conflict that Jesus and his disciples had with a group of Pharisees over this. And I actually want to jump over to Mark 7 real quick and just show you because it gives us some insight into our story today. In Mark 7, we read that the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were quote-unquote unclean And then Mark tells us that is, they were unwashed. Then in parentheses, he says, kind of just so you should know, the Pharisees and all of the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Notice in this passage the use of the word tradition. This was not something that God had asked the people to do through the Mosaic Law, it was part of their tradition. We actually know where it came from. Sometime after the Babylonian exile, which was about 600 years before Jesus, the Jewish rabbis started to make meticulous rules that governed the daily lives of all of the people and pretty much every aspect of their lives. These were not actual laws. They were interpretations and applications of the Mosaic law that got handed down from one generation to the next. In Jesus' day, it was referred to as the oral tradition or the oral law because it had not been written down. But about 200 years after Jesus, it did get written down and today is referred to as the Mishnah. Back to our story Jesus was not doing anything sinful. He was not violating anything other than some man-made rule, but when the Pharisee sees that Jesus reclined at the table without washing his hands, he's absolutely floored. He's just shocked. And so Jesus launches into this kind of teaching moment slash course correction for everybody who was gathered there that day, and it's pretty extensive. It begins in verse 39. It says, after the, this, this Pharisee was shocked, the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make also the inside? But give what is inside the dish to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Jesus compares the Pharisees to dirty dishes. Anybody else like me and you understand this analogy because you think dirty dishes are gross? Yeah? Anybody? I'm not the only one. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I do. You know, I'll put clean dishes away all day long. Like the dishwasher's done, Happy to put those away. But the dirty dishes going in, or even worse, hand-washing the dishes that don't fit in the dishwasher, it's like, oh, no, please, let me do anything but that. That is so gross. And some of the worst dishes to clean are the ones that have been sitting out long enough that stuff has dried in them. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I have a lot of experience with this because my wife is a habit I would say it's a bad habit of of leaving old coffee cups in her car. And so, you know, this is one of the differences in us. My wife is great, but as great as she is, she does this all the time. So I, I live under the principle that anything you bring into the car should also come with you out of the car. My wife does not live by that principle. And so as a result, she tends to bring a lot more things into the car than she ever takes out of the car. And so me, wanting to be a good husband and also being a guy that cares about the cleanliness of the cars, I will frequently bring the dishes in out of her car when I'm doing the dishes and loading the dishwasher. I'll just run out to the garage and get all those cups and I put them in. And it's gross, right? Well, this is the analogy that Jesus is making. The Pharisees were great at keeping the outside of the cup clean. They checked off all of the boxes. They were disciplined. They made sure they never did anything that violated a letter of the law. But at the same time, on the inside, they were nowhere near as spotless as they presented themselves as being. On the inside, Jesus knew that they were filled with pride and with arrogance and greed and just all sorts of wickedness. And Jesus hated hypocrisy. It drove him nuts to see people who were supposed to reflect the true nature of God the Father to a watching world actually be so filled with evil on the inside. And he wanted to make perfectly clear, it is not okay with God to clean the outside of the cup so that everyone who looks at it thinks that it's clean, all the while the inside is dirty. Just like dirty dishes, that's gross. And so from here, Jesus launches into what are commonly referred to as the six woe statements. And these are good. He launches into the six woe statements. We're going to look at them here. We'll kind of tick through these. But the first one is in verse 42, where he says, Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You read that and you think, What is he talking about mint and garden herbs for? His point was that the Pharisees were so committed to giving God 10% of everything they had because they knew God has asked for a tenth. That is one of the rules. God has asked us to to be generous with a tenth of our income. We are going to give him a tenth of our income. We're going to give him a tenth of everything we have. In fact, they would measure out 10% of the garden herbs that grew in their gardens and give that to God as well. And so Jesus points out that they were that committed to keeping the tithe, which is easily visible and easily measurable, and you can judge how you're performing on that. But on the inside, he says you neglect justice and the love of God, which was hugely important to God. This is like God saying, thank you for your commitment to keeping the tithe, even down to your garden herbs. I appreciate that. You are getting that right. But can I get you to fight for justice for the people who need to be be stuck up for, who need people to fight for them? This was so important to Jesus. He constantly came back to this idea. I had a conversation at one point. With somebody who said to me, John, I do not believe that Jesus cares at all about his followers pursuing justice in our world. The only thing he cares about is pointing people to salvation for the forgiveness of their sins. And this was from somebody who really deemed themselves a mature follower of Jesus. They had grown up in the church, they knew the scriptures, but at the same time, I thought to myself, like, you can quote chapter and verse for things, but like, are you missing the forest through the, through the trees? Like Jesus condemned the religious leaders for not fighting for justice for the people who needed them to fight for them. The call to love ourselves or to love other people more than ourselves means that their life here and now should be better because of the actions that we live with. The good news was good news to the poor, not just those who are poor in spirit, but also to those who were poor financially, because Jesus called his followers to love them with a love that caused them to help meet the needs of the poor and the widows in their society. Jesus calls us to love the people around us in action. That's why we do so much of these things around Heartland. This is why we gather food and we give it away. This is why we serve meals to people who are hungry. This is why we gather bicycles and give them to kids who can't afford a bicycle. This is why we collect kid-sized masks for kids who are going back to elementary school before all the kids go back because they're struggling at home and they don't have the support that they need and they can't afford a mask that fits their face. That's why we do so much of this stuff because Jesus cared deeply about the actual day-to-day experiences of people and he called on his followers to help meet those daily needs as well as their spiritual needs. Woe to you Pharisees because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue and other kinds of garden herbs but you neglect justice and the love of God. Verse 43 Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces. This one's kind of obvious why this was not a good thing. They they wanted to be honored. They thought of themselves as a big deal. Verse 44, woe to you because you are like unmarked graves which men walk over without ever knowing it. This one was a big deal, because while not washing your hands was not actually one of the laws that God had given to them, God did give them details about the handling of dead bodies. And one of the things that God made clear you're not supposed to do is walk across people's graves after they've been buried. And so Jesus said, you are like unmarked graves, which because they're unmarked, people would walk across them accidentally, becoming defiled. What he was saying in this woe statement was he was accusing the Pharisees of having a defiling, uh, a, a defiling influence on people rather than a purifying influence on them. This was highly, highly insulting. It was so insulting, in fact, that one of the teachers of the law jumps in at this point in verse 45. One of the experts in the law answered him, um, "'Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also.'" I picture this guy kind of interrupting Jesus, maybe timidly, like hoping that Jesus would would take his objection well, like maybe Jesus is going to go, oh, I'm so sorry, I only meant to like step on the toes of the Pharisees, but not you, not the group of you that are part of the teachers of, of religious law. That's not how Jesus responds in this moment. Jesus then turns to the teachers of the religious law, and he has three more woe statements reserved specifically for them, which I think is kind of funny. Because this guy should have known better, right? Like I learned this lesson growing up with with two other brothers in the house. Like when your brother is getting yelled at for something that you were doing too, you know what you do? Nothing. You stay out of it. You like slowly tiptoe back, right? You become a wallflower. You're like, I'm not taking the fall too. Like if he's going to absorb the brunt of it, like I'll just stay quiet back here and you know, pretend I'm not in the room. That's not what this, this expert in the religious law does. He steps in, and Jesus then turns to them and he's like, I've got some woes for you, buddy. He says, verse 46 And you, experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift a finger to help them. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets. This is kind of a long woe that we won't unpack the whole thing, but this one, basically, what Jesus is getting at is he's saying, you're just as bad as the religious leaders who came before you, your forefathers, who literally killed the prophets that God had sent to steer them back onto the right course. He's like, you are just as bad as them because you build tombs for the prophets. And finally, verse 52, Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. He's basically saying, you also have washed the outside of the cup and left the inside of the cup completely dirty. Ultimately, when you read a passage like this, you have to ask yourselves, so what then does Jesus want? Like, ultimately, what is the goal? What's the goal of our faith? If it's not to to wash the outside of the cup, what's the goal? If the goal doesn't revolve around our performance, what should we as followers try to do? What should we focus on? I've heard some people swing the pendulum to the other side and say that all God cares about is, is what's going on on the inside, that because we, our faith can't, you know, our actions can't save us because we're saved by grace through faith alone, it's not by works so that no one can boast, what you do with your life doesn't matter at all. Once you've prayed the sinner's prayer, once you've given your life to Christ, you're headed for eternity with him. You're good to go. It doesn't matter what you do. Is that the answer? Is that what God wants? Is that how God feels? the only thing that matters is the inside of the cup and not the outside? No. It's not. He actually tells us what he wants. Back up in verse 42, in that verse that talked about giving the tenth of our mint and rue and all these things, look at the rest of this verse. Verse 42 says, Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. And here it is. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Latter and former always confuse me, but the way that you can think of it is latter is like last, former is first. And so what he is saying here is that you should have practiced the the former, right, which is the the first, the tenth, the tithe, without neglecting the latter, which is the the pursuit of justice out of love for God. What Jesus was saying is, is he's trying to make clear that for God, it is a both and It is not an either or. Yes, God did ask his followers to give 10% of everything that he gives to them. He does want that. That's not going away. It's important to support the work of God financially. It's important because it breaks the bond of materialism on our hearts. But that's not all. He also wants us to fight for justice and to show the love of God to people in tangible ways through our actions. God is not happy with the outside of the cup being clean while the inside is dirty. He's also not satisfied with the inside of the cup being clean with the outside of the cup being dirty. He's like, clean the whole thing. It all matters. It is a both and. And what we find is that God wants us to do the right things externally, but he wants us to do them for the right reasons. It reminds me, this thought that God wants us to do the right things externally, but he wants us to do them for the right reasons, reminds me of an old movie I saw like 15 years ago called The Breakup with Vince Vaughn and Jennifer Aniston. I don't know if any of you have seen this movie or remember it. Um, I'm not recommending it, so please don't go rent it and be like, Pastor John recommended this movie. No, I'm not. It's... whatever it was a rom-com like 15 years ago but in this movie Jennifer Aniston and Vince Vaughn play a couple that are living together and they're struggling in their relationship because they're fighting over the division of labor and in the movie uh, Jennifer Aniston's character is like doing all the housework and all the chores and Vince Vaughn's character in stereotypical fashion is super lazy and doesn't do anything to to lift a finger or help right that was the stereotype we're changing that today though right guys Yes, we're changing that today, yes, okay. All right, so anyway, in this movie, they throw a dinner party, and after everybody leaves, Jennifer's character goes to work cleaning up the house. Vince Vaughn's character plops down on the couch and starts playing video games. Jennifer Anderson's character gets mad at this, of course she does, and he's like, why are you so mad? And she says, because I want you to do the dishes. And he goes, well, fine, I'll do the dishes. And then she goes, no, I don't want you to do the dishes. And he's like, well, what's wrong? And she's like, I don't, want you to want, I don't want you to do the dishes, I want you to want to do the dishes. And then he responds, why would anyone want to do the dishes? And he has a point. Why would anybody want to do the dishes? But what she was saying was perfectly valid. What she was trying to say was, I don't want you to do the right thing because I made you. I want you to do the right thing because you are the type of person who does it automatically. And that's God's perspective with us. He wants us to do the right things. But he wants us to do them for the right reasons. He doesn't want us to do the right things because we think that it's going to make us look good to the people around us. He doesn't want us to do the right things because we think it will help keep God happy. He doesn't want us to do the right things because we're trying to perform. He wants us to do the right things because it's the natural overflow of our, of, of, of our hearts, of our insides. He wants us to do the, the right things because we have given our lives to the process of sanctification, which is just the big church word to describe giving ourselves to the process of being transformed more and more into the image of Jesus himself. This was one of the reasons that so many people were drawn to Jesus when he walked the planet. People from all walks of life, people who who seemed on on the surface nothing like Jesus, like they had nothing in common with Jesus, were drawn to him. They could not stay away from this rabbi because he was real and because he was authentic and because he was never about putting on a show or projecting an image or trying to perform for anyone. And as his followers today, he invites us to live our lives the same way, to be real and to be authentic. And of course, there will be times when we're going through things and we're dealing with things that that maybe aren't super pretty. And of course, we're going to try to conceal that or hide that a little bit. But constantly, God is going, listen, I know it's there. You can't hide it from me. And until you bring it into the light, until you expose it and let some other people into it as well, you'll never get the healing that I want for you to have so badly. And so from the very earliest days, followers of Jesus have frequently prayed a prayer that goes like this, God, cleanse me from the inside out. Wash me from the inside, Lord, and as you change me on the inside Let that overflow out of me onto the outside. I'll tell you as somebody who has been there that this approach to our faith is so much less exhausting. It will wear you out trying to perform in all the ways you think you are supposed to perform. To just be real and authentic and genuine. To admit that you don't have it all together all the time, that is so freeing. And of course, we don't want to stay that way. Of course, we don't want to stay stuck. Of course, we want to grow. We want to improve. We want to become more and more the person that God has created us to be. But we can admit that we are a work in progress, that God's not done with me yet. And that is a faith that is so much better than the one that constantly makes you feel like you need to measure up or put on a right show. And that's also a faith that is so much more appealing to a hurting world. People who are hurting and broken, who know that they need something, can look at the church sometimes and see a group of people who, like the Pharisees, act like they have it all together and to project an image that that everything's clean and neat and tidy when below the surface, behind the scenes, it's obvious to them that that's not real, that they're being hypocritical. And then they, they, they make the assumption that, that that must be reflective of God himself and they are as a result turned away from him and they don't find the healing that God is inviting them to find. And when we, what we find is a God who deeply cares about us just as we are. What we find is a God who does not ask us to clean up the outside of our life so that he will love us enough to deal with the inside. It's just the opposite. He says, come to me exactly the way you are and let me start to work on the inside and the outside will start to take care of itself. What you find when you come to Jesus broken and humble and when you say, I don't have it all together, what you find is a God who welcomes you with open arms, never asks you to perform, a God who just invites you to walk through this journey, even this difficult season of your life with him, allowing him to guide you and allowing him to give you a peace that surpasses all understanding. Verse 53 brings this encounter to a close. We read in verse 53 that when Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Instead of hearing the truth of what Jesus was saying to them in this moment, instead of listening to it and thinking about it and going, you know what, Jesus is right, they chose to harden their hearts, and they chose to set themselves up against the very Son of God himself. They decided that they were happy with a performance-based religion, because they were winning at that game. But in doing so, they missed out on an incredible opportunity to be part of God's work in their society, to be part of something that would last for all of eternity. And today, you have that same opportunity to decide if you want to live with a performance-based religion Where you work hard to make everything look great on the outside, but you know the truth that on the inside, that's fake. Or you can trade that performance-based religion in for something that's real, something authentic, something where what is happening on the inside fuels what comes out and happens on the outside. That is the faith that Jesus modeled. That is the faith that Jesus brought. That is the faith that he invites us into today. As I was thinking about this passage, I couldn't help but think about this old song that we used to sing a long time ago around here that was, I think the title of the song is literally From the Inside Out. And as we thought about this service and this song, I thought, man, what a perfect way to wrap up our time together. And so I want to invite the band to come on back out. They're going to lead us in this song as we close, but as they come, can I simply pray for you and for us? Lord, we're so grateful for Challenging passages. Sometimes, Lord, we read passages that are nothing but encouraging and uplifting and inspiring. But, Lord, other times we read passages that hit a little close to home. Lord, for those of us here today, we certainly know what it is like to be tempted to have a faith and a religion that worries more about the exterior than the interior. Lord, we understand that's not what you ask for, that for you it's not an either-or, it is a both-and. And And so, Lord, would you help us to pursue you and that with authenticity? Would you cleanse us from the inside out and let that overflow into the way that we live our lives? Would it be glorifying to you and inspiring to the watching world around us? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everyone who agreed said, amen. Thanks so much for listening today. For service times and details, head to weareheartland.us.